I was asked by someone to jot down a few thoughts upon a certain subject, and I will not disclose who the guilty person is because of what it leads to. Perhaps you won't enjoy it so much, but I was asked to jot down a few thoughts on the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. So I thought I would speak on that subject this Lord's Day and the next. My discussion will revolve around four points. A, the lack of support in Scripture for the notion of purgatory. B, that purgatory as the Roman Catholics teach does not truly do what it is claimed to do. C, that it is opposed to Christ's and the Apostle Paul's teaching. And D, it is opposed and contrary to the sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And so I hope to cover A and B this Lord's Day. Now, the problem with speaking on the subject of purgatory, besides that there's no scriptural support for it to reference, is that one must first understand the false undergirding of the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory, and that is the whole contraption of work salvation, good works, penance, confession, the Mass, faulty view of the effect of the death of Christ, and so forth and so on. And we've spoken on those many times and quoted in detail from the Roman Catholic Catechism, which of course is the most authoritative statement of the Roman Catholic teaching. And we can't repeat all of that this Lord's Day. But I will say a few words by way of review of those complex subjects. To lost and doomed sinners, Christ's simple gospel promise of salvation and eternal life to everyone who trusts in Him is the perfect gift. The doctrines of imputation and substitution and justification by faith do not detract from Christ's simplicity. Rather, they adorn it and explain the power and method behind Christ's very simple offer. But the Roman Catholic false gospel takes away all the power, beauty, satisfaction, and simplicity of Christ's gospel and leaves a bare, empty husk with all the goodness taken out of it. That false gospel teaches that faith in Christ is but the door past which are a lifetime of works and rituals, submission to the unscriptural demands of the Roman system. The Roman false gospel teaches that Christ's sacrifice turns out not to be enough, but that baptisms and blasphemous celebrations of the Mass and penance and good works must be added to Christ. Under the false Roman gospel, a man can trust in Jesus and go to hell in the end. The perfect gift of full forgiveness and eternal life received at the point of faith has been spirited away by the teachings of popes and so-called priests. Instead, the perfect gift of salvation has been snatched away. And Christ's righteousness and blood are hoarded, kept away from sinners in the so-called treasury of merit, to be doled out little by little by church functionaries upon the fulfillment of their demands imposed upon the sinner. Their priests claim to offer daily a bloodless sacrifice which never completely justifies the sinner for all time. The true gospel is that the Lord Jesus shifted the judgment for sin from His people onto Himself at Calvary and paid the full price of righteous judgment that we should have received. But the Catholic false gospel is one of personal merit gained by a lifetime of obedience to the law and rituals of the church, along with merit dispensed by the church from the bank of merit and the judgment of purgatory and the grace of baptism. Catholics teach a man is not justified and declared righteous until God takes account 
of all His good works and all the good works of all the other saints, along with the grace bestowed by the church and all His sin is purged by the fire of purgatory. Only when a sinner is perfect in his own holiness does he have salvation and eternal life. Only upon reaching heaven is a man blessed. But Scripture teaches that believers are blessed when they trust in the Savior's obedience and blood. No pope can declare a true Christian blessed because Jesus has already done so. Catholic doctrine teaches that God constantly imputes sin to Christians, which is why they need the rituals of the church and personal holiness to find forgiveness. But God does not impute sin to the believer, for it has all been imputed to Christ already. That is why a believer is declared blessed now His sins are never again held against Him forever. The Roman Catholic system claims that indulgences cannot be bought, but are a method for the Pope to dispense merit from the bank of the church, to remit punishment for sins already confessed to a priest. That system constructs an elaborate edifice of good works, sacraments, masses, confessions, etc., by which a Catholic is supposed to obtain salvation and eternal bliss, but the poor sinner must depend on the generosity of his priests, so-called, and of the Pope. Then they die, and stricter, less merciful ones take their places. The poor Catholic sinner is always at the mercy of priests and popes and can never be sure when he dies that he's done enough to merit heaven. But God promises salvation by the blood of the Lamb slain in our place at Calvary. These principles then can be distilled from this elaborate construct of false teaching that the Roman Catholic system does not permit belief that we are justified for all time by faith in the sacrifice of Christ and declared righteous for all time for Jesus' sake. But rather, this is something that has to be repeated and reaccessed and reinstituted as we sin and as we then perform the necessary rituals and works and so forth that the Roman system teaches. The Roman Catholic system believes that its so-called priests represent Christ's sacrifice over and over in the Mass and claim that it is propitiatory that these celebrations of the Mass are themselves propitiatory offerings that increase justification for those who take part in them. And then the Roman Catholic system asserts salvation depends upon what the sinner does or does not do in part in order to obtain access to this mythical bank of merit so that there is no permanent and abiding peace with God for the believer under their system. And finally, Christians repeatedly fall from grace according to their beliefs and lose their salvation by sinning and must be restored before they die by rituals, by works of themselves and of others, and by sacraments and confessions, or they will go to hell for all eternity. Now, here is what the Roman Catholic Catechism says about purgatory. The final purification or purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship. Now that's a phrase that means having confessed all mortal sins and being in good fellowship with the church. But still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent, 
the tradition of the church by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. Then there's a quote here. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. There's a grotesque logical error being made there, but I won't go into it now. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayers for the dead already mentioned in sacred scripture. And then they quote from sacred scripture, Therefore Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin, unquote. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them, above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain to beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Quote, let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. So this is what the Roman Catholic system teaches in its official catechism about purgatory. Notice how bland the description of purgatory is. They've avoided, except in one or two places, the use of the term fire. But what they actually teach is that there is a fire of purgation that the souls of believers who have not been cleansed fully of their sin are made to pass through. They never explain how it is that fire can do anything to a soul Fire is a physical thing. Then, of course, they'll probably say that, well, they're using the word fire metaphorically in a spiritual sense, whatever that means. There's no talk about screams of torment, are there? But then that raises the question, how can a soul scream in torment? Does it have any physical substance or existence in which to articulate screams of torment? But it is true that for centuries, the Roman Catholic system has taught that there is torment in purgatory. That the soul is somehow cleansed by extreme punishment. And uh, Cardinal Bellarmine is quoted as saying that no doubt the flames of purgatory on an individual soul last for centuries in some cases. But it becomes in these modern days a big game of Simon Says. So unless you can prove that the Pope said it or that it's in the catechism, it's as if, well, that's not the official teaching of the Roman Catholic system. But countless millions and millions of poor people under the Roman Catholic system have been terrorized by the thought that their loved ones are now in torment and agony in purgatory and that they ought to do something about it or that they will die and lapse into such a pitiable state. And so the church made piles and piles of money out of the selling of indulgences before some killjoy pope allegedly outlawed the purchase of indulgences. But there is no doubt the church teaches flames that purify the soul. The whole thing is built upon this faulty construct of the difference between mortal and venal sin. So mortal sin is whatever sin you commit that instantly terminates your justification and your righteousness and puts you on the road to hell. That is after you've been baptized and confirmed and attended the Mass and so forth and so on. That there's a class of sins that they call mortal sins that cause you to fall out of grace and therefore be subject to eternal hellfire. And so the only way to reestablish your justification and your righteousness is to confess these mortal sins and to be absolved of them by a so-called priest 
and then to partake of the sacrament of the Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass, which is propitiatory because it satisfies for the guilt of your mortal sin and restores you, you see, into a saved state of grace awaiting your next mortal sin. Whereas venal sins are little sins, peccadilloes if you will, that are subject to judgment, but they won't condemn you to hell. Uh, What they will do is condemn you to purgatory so that you might be punished. Because, and this is a key point, the Roman Catholic system distinguishes between the discharge of the guilt of sin and discharge from the punishment for sin. And so everyone who's in a state of grace has been discharged from the guilt of their sin, but they're still subject to the punishment for their sin, but they call it temporal punishment because it doesn't go on forever and ever and ever. So that the death of Christ on the cross only takes away the guilt of the sinner until the next time he commits a mortal sin. But it doesn't in any way discharge the punishment for that sin. That's still on you. That's still on you. And of course, this violates what the Scriptures say. And For example, in James chapter 2, we read this, Whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So the Scriptures teach that all sins are mortal sins. That just one sin, no matter how innocent it might seem to hardened sinners, lost people, even believers, one sin is enough to condemn a soul for hell. In fact, according to Romans chapter 5, the sin of Adam is imputed to all mankind and therefore results in death for all mankind because all have sinned. It doesn't mean all have sinned in their own person. It means all sinned in Adam. His sin and the guilt of it was imputed to us all. This is the doctrine of original sin. So there are no venial sins. There are only mortal sins. You can see why, from a practical point of view, the Roman Catholic system has to have a distinction. Because if all sins are mortal, then there's not any hope that anybody will ever be saved. They'll be saved in the next instant. A proud look, a lying tongue, a thought of covetousness, you know, a thought of envy. Now, I should mention that pride is one of the well-known listed mortal sins. And the great reformer Martin Luther discovered the hopelessness of salvation by keeping the law and by works and by obedience, which the Roman Catholic system demands obedience of the law in order to retain salvation. Well, he he observed that every time he did something good, there was an element of pride in it. And so therefore, every good deed he committed was actually a mortal sin. And he couldn't get away from it. He couldn't get around it. And so he afflicted himself and beat himself and starved himself and he still couldn't get around the pride that everything he did in conformity with Roman Catholic doctrine in order to assure that he was in a state of grace was itself a mortal sin. And there's really no answer to that. There's really no answer to that. It's true. But you see that they have to have this practical distinction because otherwise nobody would be a Roman Catholic because there wouldn't be any profit in it at all. There'd be no hope of heaven, would there be? And so they've distinguished these two types of sin. So the Roman Catholic system teaches the need to undergo purgatory to render believers holy that they might suffer the punishment of their sin in torment after they die, to take away or to satisfy the requirements that sin places that it must be punished. So then they will be fit to enter into heaven. And I don't want to waste a bunch of time on this, but we preached on this several times, that the whole idea of beatifying a person on the way to declaring them a saint is 
that no one can be in the presence of God until he has been purged of all his sin. But some people are so good or have suffered so much in this life that they are instantly, they're instantly in the presence of God. And they don't have to go to purgatory. So they have been beatified. They've been blessed, you see. And it ain't no point in praying to somebody that's not in God's presence. They can't do you any good. So we need a list of all the beatified people so that we can know who we can pray to. Because under the Roman Catholic system, it's better to pray to somebody other than Jesus or the Father. We better pray to Mary. We better pray to one of these saints that's in glory in the presence of God. There's no point in praying to somebody in purgatory. So we need to be able to adjudicate who has made it out of purgatory. And really, really we can't adjudicate that unless they died in a state that was so good that they didn't ever have to go to purgatory at all because the church claims it doesn't really know how long it takes for this purgatory process to work. Now, you will hear people say the following. It seems reasonable that we would need to be purged of our sin by punishment before we can go into God's presence. That's the thought process that people who are willing to embrace this extra-biblical teaching will articulate. That it seems reasonable that we should be purified by punishment for our sin before we can go into God's presence. But there is, of course, no mention of purgatory in Scripture. Quoted in the Catechism was a reference to the second Maccabees in which the leaders of Israel offered sacrifices for the sins of the Jewish soldiers who died in battle and were discovered to be wearing amulets of pagan gods on their persons. In other words, they were engaged in secret idolatry of false gods. And so, in order to take away that sin posthumously, the Jewish leaders were said to have offered sacrifices for those people. Well, of course, that doesn't make any of that right. It may be a statement of historical fact, but how do you draw from that the principle that we ought to do the same thing in our own lives and for the dead that have departed from us. So that is one of their scriptural proofs of purgatory. But the main verse that they go to is not one that you would think they would rely upon because there are piles of judgments described in Scripture, some of which involve fire, but none of these does the Roman Catholic system depend upon. For example, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 verse 11, where God judges all of mankind after the second resurrection and casts those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life into the lake of fire. And then there is the judgment seat of Christ as 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, at which Christ judges the deeds done by His people, whether they be good or bad, and rewards are issued on that account. Then there's the sheep and the goats judgment described by Christ in Matthew 25 at verse 31 where He separates the sheep from the goats. And the goats of the unrighteous are sent to everlasting fire. And there's Christ's judgment in John 5 at verse 22 where He describes the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and His judgment unto eternal life or eternal judgment. And then there's the judgment of deeds described by Paul in Romans 2 at verse 5-10 through 10, where he describes how God will judge people who do well unto salvation or unto everlasting life and those who do wrong unto judgment. But none of those are used by the Roman Catholic teachers to justify the notion of purgatory. None of them quite fit the bill. What they instead rely upon is one text and their best apologists focus on this one text, 1 Corinthians 3 at verse 11, 
We read it this morning. The context, of course, is that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for being factional, for dividing themselves up amongst the preachers that they followed and listened to when they first believed. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. And the pride that went along with these factions and the divisions in the church at the Lord's table and so forth. And he's rebuking them for acting like children, for being carnal, unable to listen to the meat of the Scripture because they're all wrapped up in these silly cliques uh, that are undermining the church. So he denounces it. And then he gets into describing God's plan to judge, to reveal the quality or lack thereof of the works of His ministers. This is what the text is focusing on. The, the building of the ministers of Christ of the church and the construction of the doctrinal structures and the teachings and the exhortations and so forth. And so, Paul says this, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So you see, he's talking about people who have come behind Paul and have elaborated and built upon the foundation which Paul laid, which is Christ Jesus. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So clearly he's speaking here of the Lord's ministers, the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, the teachers of the church, that they are to take care how they go about building Christ's church upon that foundation which has been laid. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Now, we're all meant to understand that this is a metaphor. He's not talking about people building Christ's church like an actual physical building. He's not talking about the utilization of actual real gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and stubble. He's referring to that which is valuable, precious, and lasting versus that which is lowly and temporary and will not last the test of time. Just like we understand that the story of the three little pigs is not about actual pigs, but it's a, it's a metaphorical story about the way people behave. And there is no big bad wolf but there are consequences to building your house or doing your work or whatever in a slipshod manner versus using wisdom and prudence and hard work to build something which is substantial. So, he's using a metaphor. Then he says, Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. Again, this is a continuation of the metaphor. There's not actual real fire, but if you set fire to things made of gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, the the fire will take away all the, the worthless building and will leave behind that which remains, which is precious and valuable. It's a day coming when this will be revealed. When it will be revealed the manner of work that these people did. And no doubt, every one of them had some wood, hay, and stubble in their work, did some frivolous stuff, did some worthless things, some unauthorized or improvident building in the church, and others, others, you know, had almost nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Only the Lord Jesus builds only with gold, silver, and precious stones. But every man's work will be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try, note this, every man's work of what sort it is. Notice that it's not the fire that tries every man, or even that purifies every man, but rather that discriminates in the work of men, and especially of ministers building upon Christ to build the church. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Here you have this as so as by fire, as if through the flames, or as if escaping from the flames. Paul is speaking of gospel ministers, their work in building the church on the sure foundation. He warns that ministers be careful to build sound work and not shabby and dishonorable work because sound work will survive God's scrutiny and unsound work will not. But now you see, we can't tell right now looking at things which of these things there are. Now some things we can tell are wood, hay, and stubble because they're clearly contrary to God's Word. But this also might apply to the motivations of the people. Why they did what they did. So he uses this metaphor of gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, and he uses fire to continue the metaphor that unsound works shall not survive but will be consumed by the fire. Notice well, it is the works of men, not their persons or bodies or souls that are being revealed by the fire or improved by the fire. Their building upon the foundation is tried and their rewards based upon what lasts. They're not saved by fire. They're not purified by fire according to this teaching. Their works may be purified by fire, but not them. Someone once wrote that it means that they escape through the flames. They're not being cleansed by the flames. John Gill put it beautifully when he said, even if they are burnt out of house and home, they will be saved with only the clothes on their backs. But I want to read what Matthew Henry said about this text because I think that he really gets to the bottom of it in a pretty concise way. Here the apostle informs us what foundation he has laid at the bottom of all his labors among them, even Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Upon this foundation all the faithful ministers of Christ build. Upon this rock all the Christians found their hopes. Those that build their hopes of heaven on any other foundation build upon the sand. Other foundation can no man lay besides what is laid, even Jesus Christ. Note, the doctrine of our Savior and His mediation is the principal doctrine of Christianity. It lies at the bottom and is the foundation of all the rest. Leave out this and you lay waste all our comforts and leave no foundation for our hopes as sinners. It is in Christ only that God is reconciling a sinful world to Himself. But of those that hold the foundation and embrace the general doctrine of Christ being the mediator between God and man, there are two sorts. One, some build upon this foundation gold, silver, and precious stones. Namely, those who receive and propagate the pure truths of the gospel, who hold nothing but the truth as it is in Jesus, and preach nothing else. This is building well upon a good foundation, making all of a peace, when ministers not only depend upon Christ as the great prophet of the church and take Him for their guide and infallible teacher, but receive and spread the doctrines He taught in their purity without any corrupt mixtures, without adding or diminishing. But type two is others build wood, hay, and stubble on this foundation. That is, though they adhere to the foundation, they depart from the mind of Christ in many particulars, substitute their own fancies and inventions in the room of His doctrines and institutions, and build upon the good foundation what will not abide the test when the day of trial shall come, and the fire must make it manifest as wood, hay, and stubble, will not bear the trial by fire, but must be consumed in it. There is a time coming when a discovery will be made of what men have built on this foundation. Every man's work shall be made manifest, shall be laid open to view, to his own view and that of others. Some may, in the simplicity of their hearts, build wood and stubble on the good foundation and know not all the while what they have been doing. But in the day of the Lord, their own conduct shall appear to them in its proper light. Every man's work shall be made manifest to himself and made manifest to others, both those that have been misled by him and those that have escaped his errors. 
Now we may be mistaken in ourselves and others, but there is a day coming that will cure all our mistakes and show us ourselves and show us our actions in the true light without covering or disguise. For the day shall declare it, that is, every man's work, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The day shall declare and make it manifest the last day, a great day of trial. The expression carries in it a plain allusion to the refiner's art in which the fire separates and distinguishes the dross from the gold and silver, as it also will silver and gold and precious stones that will endure the fire from wood and hay and stubble that will be consumed in it. What some men's works will abide the trial will be found standard. It will appear that they not only hail the foundation, but that they built regularly and well upon it, that they laid on proper materials and in due form and order, and such a builder shall not, cannot fail of a reward. He will have praise and honor in that day an eternal recompense after it. There are others whose works shall be burnt, whose corrupt opinions and doctrines or vain inventions and usages in the worship of God shall be discovered, disowned, and rejected. In that day shall be first manifest to be corrupt and then disapproved of God and rejected. This part of his work will be lost, turning no way to his advantage. He shall be saved, yet so as by fire, saved out of the fire. He himself shall be snatched out of the flame, which will consume his work. On this passage of Scripture, the papists found their doctrine of purgatory, which is certainly hay and stubble, a doctrine never originally fetched from Scripture, but invented in barbarous ages to feed the avarice and ambition of the clergy at the cost of those who would rather part with their money than their lusts for the salvation of their souls. It can have no countenance from this text because it is plainly meant of a figurative fire, not a real one, for what real fire can consume religious rites or doctrines? And secondly, because this fire is to try men's works or what sort they are, but purgatory fire is not for trial, nor to bring men's actions to the test, but to punish for them. They are supposed to be venial sins, not satisfied for in this life, for which satisfaction must be made by suffering the fire of purgatory. All of which brings us to consider the big flaw in the conceptions and claims about purgatory. And that is the notion that punishment and torment somehow purify the soul for heaven and therefore are necessary. But this is a mere assertion that is contradicted by the actual details of how the Roman Catholic system and scheme of purgatory works. It turns out that you don't actually have to be purified or punished and tormented. You can be let off without those taking place if you do enough good works in this life or if the Roman Catholic officials grant you an indulgence. You see, my point is that the Roman Catholic doctrine eats itself in this matter. That if purgatory is necessary for the cleansing and the purging of the tormented soul, if it's necessary that His punishment be meted out upon Him to make Him fit for the presence of God, then how is it that the Roman Catholic system also has a contradictory system of indulgences and of good works that can allow the poor believer who's impure to escape without any punishment at all. It turns out that the punishment can be remitted by an indulgence so that the impure person nevertheless goes straight into the presence of God without having been purged, without having been purified by the flames of purgatory. If your soul really needs to be purified by the flames for its sins, then why have the elaborate system of works and indulgences that will allow you to escape the flames? 
And they don't even have to be your own good works. They can be the saints, other Christians still alive, or the merits of Christ and Mary and the other saints applied to your account. And the Pope can simply spring anybody he wants to from the purification at any time. Which leads us to conclude the contradiction that in fact purgatory and the purification of the soul for sin is entirely unnecessary because it can be escaped if the Roman Catholic system permits it to be escaped and is escaped according to their teaching all the time so that people go into heaven without having been purged, without having been purified by the fires of purgatory. Now, I think it's important that we really get a good feel for this whole indulgence thing. So I want to read to you the official indulgence that the Pope issued for the coronavirus situation because it created a serious theological problems for the Roman Catholic system. Listen to this. Decree of the Apostolic Penitentiary on the granting of special indulgences to the faithful in the current pandemic. This happened in March of 2020. The gift of special indulgences is granted to the faithful suffering from COVID-19 disease, commonly known as coronavirus, as well as to health care workers, family members, and all those who in any capacity, including through prayer, care for them. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Romans 12.12 The words written by St. Paul to the Church of Rome resonate throughout the entire history of the church and guide the judgment of the faithful in the face of all suffering, sickness, and calamity. The present moment in which the whole of humanity threatened by an invisible and insidious disease, which for some time now has become part of all our lives, is marked day after day by anguished fears, new uncertainties, and above all, widespread physical and moral suffering. The church, following the example of her divine master, has always had the care of the sick at heart. As St. John Paul II points out, the value of human suffering is twofold. Quote, it is supernatural because it is rooted in the divine mystery of the redemption of the world. And it is likewise deeply human because in it the person discovers himself, his own humanity, his own dignity, and his own mission. Close quote. Apostolic letter, Salvifici Dolores. Pope Francis, too, in these recent days has shown his paternal closeness and renewed his invitation to pray incessantly for those who are sick with the coronavirus so that all those who suffer because of COVID-19 precisely in the mystery of this suffering may rediscover, quote, the same redemptive suffering of Christ, unquote. This apostolic penitentiary, ex actoritate sumi pontificus, Trusting in the word of Christ the Lord and considering with a spirit of faith the epidemic currently underway to be lived in a spirit of personal conversion grants the gift of indulgences in accordance with the following disposition. The plenary indulgence, that means an indulgence that covers all of your confessed sins back to the beginning of time, is granted to the faithful suffering from coronavirus who are subject to quarantine by order of the health authority in hospitals or in their own homes, if, with a spirit detached from any sin, they unite spiritually through the media to the celebration of Holy Mass. In other words, they can watch Catholic Mass online. The recitation of the Holy Rosary to the pious practice of the way of the cross or other forms of devotion, or if at least they will recite the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and a pious invocation, to the Blessed Virgin Mary, offering this trial in a spirit of faith in God and charity towards their brothers and sisters with the will to fulfill the usual conditions, sacramental confession, Eucharistic communion, and prayer according to the Holy Father's intentions as soon as possible. So this plenary indulgence is granted to everybody who's under quarantine for coronavirus, but they have to spiritually unite and a spirit detached from sin with the celebration of the Holy Mass or the recitation of the Holy Rosary or practice the pious way of the cross 
or other forms of devotion, or if at least they recite the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and a pious invocation to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and offer this trial in a spirit of faith in God and charity toward their brothers and sisters. And they have a plan in the future to go to confession and go to the Mass and prayer for the Holy Father's intentions. So these people are given a plenary indulgence. So apparently, they really don't have to be tormented to purify themselves from their sin. They just get out of jail card free because they have coronavirus and are quarantined. Here's another one. Healthcare workers, family members, and all those who following the example of the Good Samaritan, exposing themselves to the risk of contagion, care for the sick of coronavirus according to the words of the Divine Redeemer, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, will obtain the same gift of the plenary indulgence under the same conditions. So you don't have to be quarantined. You could just be a caregiver. This apostolic penitentiary also willingly grants a plenary indulgence under the same conditions on the occasion of the current world epidemic, also to those faithful who offer a visit to the Blessed Sacrament or Eucharistic Adoration or reading the Holy Scriptures for at least half an hour or the recitation of the Holy Rosary, or the pious exercise of the way of the cross, or the recitation of the chaplet of divine mercy to employ from Almighty God the end of the epidemic, relief for those who are afflicted, and eternal salvation for those whom the Lord has called Himself. So here you don't even have to be under quarantine. You don't have to be a caregiver. You can just be praying for the epidemic to end. The church prays for those who find themselves unable to receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick and of the viaticum. Now that's the last rites they're talking about there. See, some people, they can't even have the last rites because they're in quarantine. Entrusting each and every one to the divine mercy by virtue of the communion of saints and granting the faithful a plenary indulgence on the point of death provided that they are duly disposed and have recited a few prayers during their lifetime. In this case, the church makes up for the three usual conditions required. In other words, they don't have to have the last rites mass. They don't have to have the last rites confession or absolution. All they have to do is have said a few prayers and all the rest the church will dispose of. For the attainment of this indulgence, the use of the crucifix or the cross is recommended. May the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God and of the Church, health of the sick and help of Christians, our advocate, help suffering humanity, saving us from the end of this pandemic, and obtaining for us every good necessary for our salvation and sanctification. The present decree is valid, notwithstanding any provision to the contrary. So you see that if the Pope says so, you can just dispense with last rites. You can dispense with the necessity to confess mortal sin or to receive absolution for mortal sin or to receive the sacrifice of the Mass for the propitiation of your mortal sin. All of those things can be waived under the Pope's power of indulgence. Which makes you wonder, then why are all of those things necessary in the first place? But we go on because we have this description of plenary indulgences from the Catholic Diocese of Pittsburgh. Even though confessed and forgiven sins will not send a person to hell, consequences remain to be paid on earth or in purgatory. An indulgence frees the recipient from those consequences. It can't be said any plainer than that. That purging of sin or purifying by flames in order to make one fit to be in the presence of God can be dispensed with. An indulgence frees the recipient from those consequences. Reception of an indulgence always springs from sincere repentance, the desire to live a holy life, reception of the sacraments of penance and holy communion as soon as possible, and prayer for the Holy Father. An indulgence cannot be bought, nor can one be obtained by going through the motions without sincerity. 
A partial indulgence covers part of the punishment due for sins. A plenary indulgence removes all of it. Both kinds of indulgence come from the merits of Jesus, the Blessed Mother, and the saints. These merits are the opposite of demerits. They are spiritual fruits accumulated through holy living. To grant indulgences, the church draws on a great treasury of merits, the infinite value of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, and the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, including all of those on earth who live holy lives. A plenary indulgence is a particularly powerful way to obtain remission of punishment on earth or in purgatory that would have resulted from sins that were already forgiven. It covers all sins, mortal and venial, that the recipient is committed up to that time if the person sincerely repents, detests their sins, fulfills all requirements of the indulgence. Pope Francis has granted special ways to gain a plenary indulgence during the coronavirus pandemic when many people cannot go to confession, and I read that already. At the heart of this pandemic-related indulgence is Pope Francis' request for everyone to implore from the Almighty God the end of the epidemic, relief for those who are afflicted, and eternal salvation for those whom the Lord has called to Himself. The person must resolve to receive the sacraments of confession and Eucharist as soon as possible. Those at the point of death are not required to receive the sacraments or even to pray unless they recover and can do so later. There are three ways to gain this plenary indulgence, depending on the circumstances. For God to end a pandemic, bring relief to the afflicted and salvation to those who have died, they must also engage in one of these devotions. Visit the Blessed Sacrament, engage in Eucharistic adoration, pray the Rosary, read Scripture for at least 30 minutes, follow the Stations of the Cross, or pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. They must resolve to go to confession and receive the Eucharist as soon as it's safely possible. I think we'll stop there. The point is that what the church actually teaches about indulgences contradicts what it teaches about the necessity and purpose of purgatory. That is, that poor believers must be purged or purified by the suffering of flames in purgatory before they can enter into the presence of God. Now, you can see that there are many problems with these false teachings. There's a confusion of what is real righteousness. That it can never be a righteousness in ourselves by our own works. The Catholic system seems to think that righteousness is piecemeal. That it's not the perfect all-time obedience to God's commandments but rather that you can switch into modes of righteous or not being righteous along the timeline of your existence. And that today you might be righteous, but yesterday you weren't. Tomorrow you might be unrighteous again. But the righteousness which God requires is a perfect obedience for all time. And so therefore we can never be righteous according to our own works unless we've never committed a sin or had a sin imputed to us from Adam. And without being perfectly righteous, we cannot be justified, that is, declared to be without fault at all before God according to our own works. Because we will only cease from sin at our death or at the resurrection. And even then... If going forward we sin and sigh no more, as the songwriter put it, nevertheless we would not be perfectly righteous on our own account. And so we can only be justified by faith and made righteous only by the imputation of Christ's perfection to us. Not of our own works, not of the works of others, not of the works of the saint or the Blessed Virgin Mary, only of Christ's works. And those are imputed to us so that we're accounted righteous. We who continue to sin are accounted righteous according to God's Word, but not according to the Roman Catholic teaching. And then B, there is a confusion of punishment with purification. This is a strange thing. 
Because where does one get the notion that to be punished for sin somehow purifies oneself of sin? No, the sin which was committed is not taken away just because you're punished for it. It needs to be punished in the substitute to be taken away. The body of Christ needs to carry away your sin when He was punished on the cross. So this idea that we can be purified by punishment is completely false. And then third, confusion of the consequences of sin in this life and of chastisement with punishment of sin hereafter. There is a consequence for our sin that we've been forgiven of, that we've been justified from, that we have had imputed unto Christ and forgiven completely. There may be a consequence in this life. We may have harmed ourselves or harmed other people. But those consequences are not the punishment for our sin being laid upon us somehow. Well, as I mentioned, sometimes other people suffer the consequences of our sin. They're not being punished for our sin any more than we are. And then, of course, the Scriptures teach that God chastises His sons, but this is not the same as punishment for sin. And certainly there's no mention of it being punished in the hereafter. We can and will only be righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ through faith in His blood. And for all eternity, we will only be called righteous by the blood of Jesus and by the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we are being purified unto good works. That is true. But never made righteous by our good works or by the good works of any other than our dear Lord Jesus. We must never grasp at our own good works as any basis at all for our righteousness or that we might thereby be justified by God. No. Oh, that the Roman Catholic people might grasp a hold of this mighty truth expressed so well by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 at verse 5. Behold, the day comes, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. This is the only hope of the poor sinner. It's the only hope of the believer. It's the only hope of the Christian that the Lord Jesus has become our righteousness. And by His sacrifice as God's Lamb, we are forgiven of our sins. And then He becomes our righteousness. And only then, you see, can we have peace with God. There is no peace for the Roman Catholic penitent with God. Only a hope that in the end He'll die in the right state then to face torment for His sins before He can come into the presence of God. But Paul teaches us in Romans 5 that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so around this table we celebrate who it is that gave us this peace with God. Our dear Savior who laid down His life for the sin of His people. Laid down His life for the atonement of sin. Shed His blood for the remission. For the remission. For the forgiveness of sin. And took all of our punishment upon Himself so that we might go free. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. 
Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in your love for your people that you would not leave us without peace with you, but you have ordered peace for your people on account of the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came in human flesh to take on a body that he might be judged for all the crimes of his people laid upon him, that he might suffer the wrath and the judgment and the anguish and the sorrow, that you might rain down on him all the punishment we should have received when Jesus was made a curse for us to free us, to redeem us from the curse of the law. We thank you that for your people, Christ's punishment has been enough and his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. We thank You for that blood that He shed to make atonement for us. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We thank You that You have forgiven us of our sin for Jesus' sake and on account of Jesus' blood shedding. We thank You for this cup that He left us. We thank You for the peace that we have through the Lord Jesus, through the work that He did for us to save us from our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread or drink this cup, we preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 38. Number 38 in the black book, Behold the glories of the Lamb. Amidst the Father's throne, prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. Number 38.